A reading from the New Testament, John 12, 12 through 26. The next day, at the large crowd that had come to the feast, heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loses his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. Join me as we pray. God, we thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your love in our lives. Thank you that even today you are here and you desire to meet us where we are and to take these words to apply them to our hearts in giving us new life and strengthening our faith and our love for you. We pray, Spirit, that you would come, that you would visit us even now. In Christ's name, amen. Today, as Glenn said earlier, is Palm Sunday, where we commemorate Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem for the final time. And we understand the importance of entrance, especially in the city, right? We all would like to, whether we say it or not, like to make a grand entrance. And I see this uh, happening on a micro level in my house. There is a noticeable difference when Grace, my wife, comes home and when I come home and the kind of, kind of welcome we receive from our children. Uh, usually, um, when I'm home with the kids and they hear the door crack open, there is this loud, loud, ruckus, highly emotionally charged welcome as they run toward the door, uh, you know, just greeting mommy. And um, this one time, I kid you not, well, not just once, it happened many times. Uh, this one time, I came home expecting a similar welcome, and all I heard uh, was this tiny pair of feet just running across the living room to greet me. That was Daniel, my two-year-old. 
he probably was confused as to who I was, right? <laughs> he probably thought I was mommy. <laughs> and so he came to welcome me, but surprise. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, daddy. All right, well, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I said, hey, daddy's home. And, uh, you know, my girls are only eight and six, but they become teenagers really early these days. <laughs> like, they, they didn't even bother to do this. They just stayed glued on a TV show, whatever they're watching. They're like, hey, daddy. <laughs> and I was like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. We're going to do this again, okay? I'm going to go downstairs, and I'm going to open the door. And when you hear the door, I want you all to run to greet me, right? And I forced them to greet me <laughs> the way they greet mommy. <laughs> because secretly, I like to be welcomed. Don't we all? Okay, maybe this is me. I don't know. You guys are all judging me like, what is wrong with you? It's all right. It's all right. That's who I am. In the text that we have read, we see Jesus entering into a city, and it's somewhat like my wife's greeting, right? People are flocking to him with palm branches, singing the psalm from Psalm 118, receiving him as king. But Jesus knew all along the deep inside that they did not know the why or the what was going to happen. But he receives that. He doesn't reject it. He's not standoffish. He doesn't correct or rebuke them, but he receives that. And even there, he is continually testifying to himself so that through this, even this entrance, that the people would understand who he really is and come to faith in him. You know, on that day, he rode on a donkey to show his heart and his mission that he did not come to judge or to condemn, but to bring peace. Now, one day he will return, and when he does, he will be on a horse to declare war and justice once and for all on sin. But as we live in between these two advents of Christ, the coming of Christ, John calls us to live as followers of Christ. Now, what does that mean? It means simply that we learn to walk in the path of the cross, denying ourselves, saying no to self-love, and saying yes to Christ and to his reign in our life. And as we will see, this is what our hearts long for, and this is what we need the most. There are two things we're going to talk about tonight. First is the king's victory, and second we'll look at king's glory. Okay? King's victory and king's glory. Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final time, and really to confront the enemy head on and fulfill what was spoken at the outset of the scripture in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, where God spoke these words. He said, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. You see, even from the very beginning, the outcome was never in doubt. We knew that this battle would take place, but that Jesus, this Messiah figure, this kingly figure, this warrior, would come out victorious. So Jesus entering Jerusalem is not uncertain. It's not riddled with question marks as to what's going to happen and how things will unfold. But it really is a victory lap. 
he comes to claim what is rightfully his by defeating the great enemy. But this does not mean that it made his suffering and pain any less real. You see, even though he is surrounded by a multitude of people, Jesus enters the city alone. No one, not even the disciples, know why he is coming and what is about to happen. Some of you know the challenge of living and going through some difficult times in life, a rough patch in life all by yourself. Even though you have people who love and care for you, praying for you, supporting you deep inside, you struggle alone. You feel disconnected and you're constantly questioning the promise that you see in the scripture. And sometimes it gets exhausting, doesn't it? You're trying so hard to hold it together. Maybe it's something that happened at work. Maybe it's conflict that has been going on at home. Maybe it's your health, your relational status, and the list goes on and on and on. And you feel like you're in it alone, all by yourself. And if that's where you are tonight, I want you to know that Jesus understands. And that he has actually done something about it. Jesus knows what it's like to go into the fight of his life alone. And he did that on the cross. And he wants you to know that because he went to the cross alone, you will never be alone. He is always with you. He understands. And he sympathizes with you. And he gives you grace that you need to persevere. And because he defeated the great enemy, you will never live in fear that somehow things will come unrailed. Jesus wants you to know that the victory has been achieved. And because he rose again from the dead, you need not despair. This is the gospel that is presented before us, that Christ has entered into Jerusalem. And on the cross, he has won. And he extends that victory, the benefit, the spoils of victory to his people so that we can live our lives enjoying what Christ has done for us. And this is what Jesus is about to do. But people, including the disciples, thought otherwise. You see, there is this ongoing theme in the book of John where people, they just don't get Jesus. Surprise, surprise, right? In other news, the sky is blue and the grass is green, right? People just don't get Jesus. And we see this in Jesus' conversation with variety of people throughout the gospel, but in particular in his conversation with Nicodemus, a religious leader at the time. Jesus basically said, look, you must be born again. And Nicodemus basically replied, how can I re-enter my mother's womb? And they're missing the point here. And he doesn't understand what Jesus is trying to say. But going back to the crowd, okay, to their credit, their conviction was not unfounded. Okay? Let's get into the text. It says, first of all, that this took place uh, during Passover, which is one of Israel's paramount festivals commemorating basically God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt. So already the setting is pointing toward something. 
people are excited about what God did in the past and also looking ahead to what God will do one day. So that's already in play. And adding to the frenzied atmosphere is the rumor that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, people may not get Jesus, but they're smart enough to connect the dots. And they're saying to themselves, look, this is Passover. We're awaiting this Messiah. And here he is, who has said that he is the great I am. And he has proven that with all these signs, including raising Lazarus from the dead. And so before long, the crowd, this great uh, crowd, John says, joined with a crowd uh, from Bethany. And they ushered Jesus into Jerusalem with a proper messianic fashion. The people took palm branches and they went out to meet Jesus. Now, culturally, palm branches symbolize national hope. But theologically, palm branches celebrated the arrival of the Messiah. Psalm 118, verse 27, it says, The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine on us with bows in hand, join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. Here in Psalm 118, the psalmist basically says that we as a people of God ought to greet the Messiah with bows in hand. And that's exactly what the people are doing. They reach for palm branches and they rush out to greet Jesus. And on top of that, they bless him with the song, From the same psalm, Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, they shout, Lord, save us, which means Hosanna. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he, talking about a particular son of David, this messianic figure who comes in the name of the Lord. And it's at this point, John tells us, that Jesus got on a donkey to confirm his kingship. Again, he's not saying, oh, no, 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 I am not the one. Rather, he receives worship as Israel's king, this Messiah who is to come, by riding on the donkey into Jerusalem. You have to understand how unusual this was. Because most people, all the pilgrims, they would enter Jerusalem, the final leg of the journey, on foot. But Jesus walks up to a certain parameter, then he gets on a donkey and enters Jerusalem, which is the opposite of what everyone else did. And by riding on a donkey, Jesus fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet Zechariah, the text that we read earlier. It said, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus confirms his kingship. But he says, My mission is not what you think it is. You see, the crowd expected a political Messiah who would declare war on Rome and restore the nation of Israel. They thought Rome was the problem. If only we could get rid of Rome, our lives would be so much better. Don't we do this all the time? We say to ourselves, really, the problem is out there. The problem is, you know, the conservatives, the liberals, the rich, the poor, the educated, the uneducated. And conveniently, the problem is always outside of us. But Jesus knows that the real problem is sin. And that problem is right here in our hearts. 
And so Jesus enters Jerusalem to deal with the great enemy and to solve the greatest problem of sin that Rome or even Jerusalem itself cannot solve. And he does so by bringing peace. He declares peace to the people who are estranged from God, living in sin, lost. And he says, peace. I have come to establish what was broken. And I'm going to do that through my triumph in the cross. All this to say, what you and I need the most is peace that Jesus offers to us. You may be here sort of looking into Christian faith and thinking that somehow that if you can find the right relationship, if you can get high enough in your career path, if you can accomplish enough in your academic realm, that somehow your life will be better if not complete. The Bible says those things are superficial because the real problem, and I think you know this, is much more fundamental. It's in your heart. And these external things, no matter how many relationships you enter into, no matter how much money you make, how many of your work gets published, it, it's not going to solve the problem of sin that's in your heart. And Jesus knows this. You see, sometimes even the longing in our hearts, longing for what is good and true, confirm the suspicion that what we really need is peace that Jesus brings and not these external things. This week, I read an article on displacement by gentrification in D.C. It was about Berry Farm, public housing complex in southeast Washington, an important landmark for African Americans dating all the way back to mid-1800s. This article, it talked about the place, but more than that, it introduced people, their names, their stories. This is a place that they call home. And as I was reading through this article, I, I, I kept sensing in my own heart this longing for mercy, for justice, for true community, where we can reach out and love them and embrace them, regardless of where they are socioeconomically, and to really come together as a, as a community. And I realized after reading that and that article and sort of thinking through my own feelings and longings, I realized what I was ultimately longing for was God himself. You see, God is a source of mercy and justice and community. And he's the greatest advocate for these things. He was willing to give his son so that these things would be actualized in our own life. His kingship is what we need the most. And it's by surrendering to Him that we find all that we're promised in the Scriptures. And that's a challenge before us, to dethrone ourselves and surrender to King Jesus. To put it in, in a practical sense, surrendering to Jesus means learning to say, not my will, but yours be done daily. As you think about a difficult relationship, as you think about a difficult situation, you have your knee-jerk reactions, right? You want to say and do things, 
either to solve it or to ignore it. But it's to, but to surrender to Christ means to take that and say, Jesus, what is it that you want me to do in this context? How do you want me to engage this person? How do you want me to engage this situation at work? Give me wisdom and insight. And give me strength and courage to honor you. Even if that means that my reputation may take a hit. And I understand that surrendering is not a very popular idea. Even within the church. We don't want to surrender to anybody. We let God in only so far. We give Him Sundays, maybe a weekday with our small group, maybe a project once a year, but that's enough. That's it. God, don't ask for anything more. But as we read through the scriptures, the only kind of discipleship that I see that Jesus calls us to is not a partial discipleship because that's no discipleship at all. But it's to give our all, to surrender our all to Him. And I thought about this. You know, surrender as much as we resisted, it's really the, the most logical thing to do. If we really have, and we say we believe, a Father who is all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving, who has committed Himself for His glory and for our good, surrender makes sense. But surrender also frees us. It frees us from the illusion of control. How many of us struggle to let go because we want to control the situation or that person? And we think we have all the resources to do so. And eventually we hit a wall, don't we? And we say, forget it, I'm done, I can't do this. But when we surrender that relationship or that situation to God, we're saying, God, I don't have control. As a creature, I'm limited. I don't know everything and I can't do everything. So God, I'm giving it to you. And surrender also frees us from anxiety over results. We, think, we try so hard to produce the kind of results that Washington would approve of. The one that would get us in the right circles. Right print. And we work so hard for that. But Jesus says, no, that's not what life is all about. And he frees us from anxiety over results. See, learning to surrender is the most logical, the most freeing, the most hopeful thing we could do. But still, there's a part of us that resists that. And that very thing is called sin, which Christ is working on. And so if you're here tonight and you're struggling to surrender yourself to God, and you find yourself going back and forth, step forward and then two steps back, and you feel like this is a messy process that you can never get your hands around, then you're in the right company. This is, this is where you need to be. And you need to be reminded of the fact that this is a lifelong process, that none of us will get it right. And I'm so encouraged by these words in John 12, verse 16. It says, At first, the disciples did not understand all this. Aren't you glad that you're not the only one struggling here are the disciples who have been with Jesus for three and a half years. They heard it all. They saw it all. Yet they did not understand. I'm glad. I'm glad for verses like this because it encourages me 
to know that I'm in the right place and that I don't have to get everything right the first time or even the second time. But he's not going to give up. And he's going to continue to reveal these things to me. And he's going to help me get there. You know, I turned 40 not too long ago. And I, I know some of you are above, you know, way past that. And some of you are not even close. But, uh, I, you know, 40 did something to me. I, I, I don't know why. It, it did something to me. And I, I didn't think, I, I'm not really into numbers or celebrating birthdays. But it, it did something to me. And it made me reflect, sort of go back on my journey and, and this one night after everyone went, went to bed I pulled out all the photo albums <laughs> I was like going through it with a tub of ice cream now I wasn't I wasn't depressed okay but I don't know what it was I just got really nostalgic and sort of went back and, and retraced the steps of my life you know from my infancy all the way to now I, you know who would have thought that I'd be here like in this church in Washington D.C. If he had told me 25 years ago when I first gave my life to Christ that this is what I would be doing today, I would, I would have laughed at you. It was, a rough, it was a rough journey. I was confused, uncertain. I was fearful, sometimes wishing that I didn't take those steps. But looking back at it, now I see the hand of God, His grace that led me every step of the way. We don't always get it the first time. But he's not going to give up on you. He's not going to give up on me. Whether you realize it or not, he's holding on to you. And he's walking with you. And when you look back, I think Glenn said this last week, you would be astonished by his faithfulness that's his victory let's move on to our second point king's glory in verses 20 and 22 we're told that some Greeks asked for Jesus interestingly Jesus' life is sort of bracketed by uh, Gentiles right the magi from the east marked the beginning of his earthly life and then here, the Greeks mark the end of Jesus' life. It's almost as if the gospel writers are trying to say that Jesus was mindful of all of us from the very beginning, and he loved us till the very end. That's encouraging, isn't it? And Jesus somehow interprets their coming as an indication that the hour of his death has finally come. Why? Because in order for the gospel to be the gospel for all people, Jesus must first suffer and die. John 12, verse 32, it says, And I, when lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Salvation to the Gentiles does not happen without this. Jesus must first be lifted up. And if you skip ahead to Revelation chapter 5, it's fascinating. Same John, okay, who is uh, exiled in the island of Patmos, has a vision where he sees uh, the scroll that is sealed. And he begins to weep because there's no one worthy to open the seal until an angel comes and says, Look, the Lion of Judah has triumphed. And as he beholds this lion, he sees a lamb that is slain. And it's the lamb who goes to the throne, takes the scroll 
from the Father's hand and breaks it open so that God's redemptive history will continue. All this to say, Jesus' death on the cross is absolutely pivotal for the gospel to go to the ends of the earth. And here's an important lesson for all of us. The world says the cross is a failure. It is shameful. It's defeat. But Jesus said it is his glory. Why? Because it demonstrates God's self-forgetful love to sinners like us. It's on that cross we see clearly not only God's righteousness and holiness that demands payment for sin, but His amazing love for us. We sing about it. We tell stories about it. But the greatest evidence of God's love is the cross itself. It's where all of our spiritual journey begins. Every one of us, if you are a Christian, this is the first time you begin to see the gospel, understand his love for you, and in response, you give your life, your everything to him who has given his all to you. This is the birthplace of the church, and this is the birthplace of all his people. So often, the danger is to move on from the cross to quote-unquote deeper, more spiritual things. And we somehow get wrapped up in these secondary things. These are important things like theology, social ministry. These are important things that God has called us to. But if the cross is not central to the things that we're trying to do as a church, then we miss the mark. We need to work hard to keep the cross always before us. Glory of the cross is that it's a place of unmistakable love for sinners. And maybe you're here tonight. You've been in this journey for some time. You remember the days, maybe years before, when you were just on fire for the Lord. You couldn't wait until the class or work was over so you can spend some time in prayer and word. You remember those days? And it was sweet. It was unforgettable. Even though your theology was probably borderline heretical, it was good. Remember those days? I think the challenge for us is always keep the cross before us. We don't graduate from the cross to something else. No, we understand it more and more and more, and it becomes a driving engine in our hearts, which then leads us into our city, into relationships, into our workplaces, into the mess that we see all around us, and to be able to proclaim God's peace with hope. That's what we've been tasked with. So here's a challenge for us to see the cross as our glory. What do I mean? You see, we live in a world, especially in a city, where glory means getting ahead and moving on, tacking on more titles, becoming more influential, more powerful, so on and so forth. And we love doing this because we, we're all scorekeepers, as one pastor said. We keep score and we sort of look over to see how we measure with the rest 
right? Students, if you're a student, you keep score through your GPA, right? Hey, what did you get on that test? Oh, 93. I got 94. And you feel good about yourself as if it gives you worth. And sometimes it really feels like it. Working people, we keep score through income, size of the office, people we know, people we shake hands with, have coffee with. Parents, we keep score through our children's success. Right? I mean, some of the stories we exchange as parents, if you're an outsider, you would think we're crazy. We're talking about three-year-olds who can read. So what? <laughs> right? It's like, it's great, but really, is, is, that, is that everything? But boy, that, that never stopped us parents from talking about it like we climbed Mount Everest, right? We keep score because score defines reality. It gives us our identity and worth. And sometimes even in the church we do this. How hard are you serving? Are you making it out to all the community groups, which are small groups that meet throughout the week? Are you going to this event this weekend? And we sort of use that to gauge our spirituality and we sort of look over to see if we're doing better than others. And the Bible says, stop, will you? This is nonsense. We do these things. We keep score, really, to to feel better of ourselves. But you're missing the gospel that says you are his child. Do you really want to be your GPA? I don't know. Maybe you got 4.0 and you're like, yes, I wouldn't mind. (laughs) That's not my story, so I'm okay. I'm free. Do you really want, right, the sum of your life, your identity, your worth, to be how much you make? Why would you cheapen yourself? You are so much more valuable than your bank account. So stop. I remember feeling like this, just feeling like I I was really behind the curve uh, right after I finished college. After graduating, I stayed on the campus to serve. um, And basically, I knew I was going to become a pastor eventually at some point. But I thought I'd stick around to learn what ministry is about, right? it sounded really good when I did it, but a few years into it, I was like, oh man, what did I get myself into? Because all my friends, the guys I graduated with, this is mid-90s, okay? Uh, they, they were getting high-paying jobs right after college. And I'm like, man, I helped them through college. Like, they're making all this money while I'm playing basketball with a bunch of like 19, 20-year-olds. And then they, they, they get married. And I'm like, my goodness, I'm still playing basketball with a bunch of 19, 20-year-olds. And then they were having children. I'm like, I'm still playing basketball with 19, 20-year-olds. And I was like depressed. And I, I, met, I met with my pastor and he's like, my God is training you. He's preparing you. And I was like, on a good day, I would have said, amen, praise God for that. But on, on my worst days, I'm like, that's not enough. I want a title. I want a church. I want a ministry. I want something. Because I was keeping score. The only score you need to worry about is the one Christ accomplished for you. It's perfect, flawless. And as a result, you receive all the benefits of God's favor. That's the only score that counts. Let me challenge you and say, 
as a people of God, and we'll wrap up with this thought here, as a people of God, how we measure glory matters. Instead of defining ourselves and our worth based on these external things that really cheapen us, the Bible says we ought to rest in the work that is accomplished for us and move into the world to demonstrate, to represent that glory to the people around us. In other words, to, to glory in the cross in our own sense is to demonstrate the Father's love to people. Now that's messy. It takes a lot of time, a lot of effort. And it's going to feel like a hurdle that you need to overcome. But that, the Bible says, is our glory. And my prayer is that we, as a people of God here at Grace Downtown, would glory not in these external things, but that we would glory in the cross and making that cross clear to the people that God has placed in our lives. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful that you came into Jerusalem to finish the work that we messed up from the very beginning. And now you've given us faith to believe and you commissioned us to, representative, to be representatives of this glory in this world. We're asking for courage because so often we can't do it, at least not well. So strengthen us, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.